Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, putting your body in front of weapons shipments and organizing for peace. Our guest is Rachel Small, Canada organizer for World Beyond War, an organization of which I'm the executive director. Rachel Small is a community organizer based in Toronto, Canada, on Dish with One Spoon and Treaty 13 Indigenous Territory. She has organized within local and international social environmental justice movements for over a decade with a special focus on working in solidarity with communities harmed by Canadian extractive industry projects in Latin America. She has a background in art-based activism and has facilitated projects in community mural making, independent publishing and media, spoken word, guerrilla theater, and communal cooking with people of all ages across Canada. Rachel Small, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me. So recently there was, uh, I think, January 25th, a day of actions all around the world related to Yemen. What does that have to do with Canada and what did, did you all do up there? Last Monday, January 25th, was the Global Day of Action to End the War on Yemen. This was obviously a concern to people all over the world, watching the war in Yemen enter its sixth year and seeing the devastation that's happening. Here in Canada, we've been closely tracking Canada's involvement in this war, primarily uh, by arming it. Canada is currently the second biggest arms dealer to the Middle East region in general, and a big part of that is this $15 billion contract that it has to sell hundreds of what they call light-armored vehicles, essentially like smallish tanks, um, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is the largest arms deal in Canadian history, I should say, and uh, these are hundreds upon hundreds of these tanks that are produced in London, Ontario, and ultimately uh, they sort of, it's a bit of a complicated supply chain, they get their cannons via Belgium, and, and but they're assembled, built in London, Ontario, ultimately shipped um, overseas to Saudi Arabia, where we've been seeing over the past few years video documentation of these tanks being used in the conflict with Yemen. Of course, that's not what Saudi Arabia says they're being used for. The Canadian government maintains, oh, we have no evidence that they've been used, but there is video evidence. And over the past six years, there's been increasing efforts across Canada to get, canceled, to get Canada to cancel this arms deal to stop arming and fueling literally the worst humanitarian situation on the earth as per the UN. So, wait, Rachel, Canada's position is that they're sending weapons of war to a brutal dictatorship engaged in a long-standing war because uh, Saudi Arabia says they're not actually using the weapons of war in their war? To be honest, the Canadian government hasn't even done much defending of this deal. Uh, they did suspend it uh, or suspend new weapons permits uh, briefly after the famous uh, murder of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, of course, by Saudi agents in Istanbul. So after that media storm around that, Canada did briefly announce a freeze on new weapons exports to Saudi Arabia. Um, but it, it then sort of lifted the freeze very shortly after. Um, it, it put together, strangely enough, a decent report showing the risk of Canadian weapons being used in Saudi Arabia, but then the Conclusion was somehow, well, we can we can lift the freeze 
it seems like the best we can ascertain is they're essentially calling up uh, the Saudi government and essentially taking them at their word um, when they insist that no human rights violations have taken place, when they insist that these weapons are purely being used for defense. It really seems like Ottawa is satisfied with this and for that reason has justified resuming export of these tanks. And I should say that there are other uh, smaller deals, maybe lesser-known Canadian arms sales to Saudi Arabia that are happening. There's a Winnipeg-based company that makes sniper rifles. Sniper rifles. There's another uh, company that produces Gurkha armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia. And there we have video evidence that they've been used in suppressing uprisings and protests within Saudi Arabia itself in the eastern uh, province, as well as the war in Yemen. So just to make it clear, this is not a story of a kind of one bad apple or one bad weapon. This is a, a pattern that keeps repeating where there's clear evidence that the Canadian weapons are being used in ways that are completely illegal according to arms trade treaty that Canada is a signatory to. And yet the Liberal government is sort of temporarily suspending the permit and then quietly reinstating them. And I think this has fallen a little bit under the radar during the COVID pandemic. I think the way, Rachel, that human rights groups uh, define human rights abuses are is essentially any cruelty and violence outside of wars. If it's in a war, it can't be a human rights abuse. Uh, and so when there's evidence that rifles are being used against Saudis protesting uh, that's not part of a war, well, that's a human rights abuse. But if they're using these tanks in a war, uh, attacking men, women, and children in Yemen, uh, that's okay. They're still humans, but their rights aren't being abused. Uh, in any case, you, you and uh, your organizers and members and allies got a great deal of media attention uh, and moved some some of this agenda forward with your action on January 25th. Um, can you describe what you did? Yeah, so by uh, a series of ac- lucky accidents, um, some allies of us determined uh, greater detail about how it was that these LADs, these small tanks, tanks were traveling uh, across Canada through the states on their way to Saudi Arabia. And we were able to determine that when they leave, GDLF, where they're manufactured in London, they travel by rail to a trucking company just outside Hamilton, where upon their truck from Hamilton across the border to the States, they get on a boat. Um, so with this new information, um, basically gleaned by, by photos on social media of tanks on the back of trucks, <laughs> we, um, we realized there was a, a real vulnerable place here where we could physically and directly interrupt the transit of these weapons en route to, to Saudi Arabia and, and possibly eventually Yemen. And so on, on Monday, a um, few dozen allies gathered together outside of Paddock Transport International, just outside of Hamilton, uh, which is about an hour outside of Toronto. With our banners seated calmly in place, we blocked uh, trucks from being able to leave or enter the facility um, for over an hour, again, on the Global Day of Action to End the War on Yemen. Um, the support that has come in from all over the world has been has been quite overwhelming. People, I think, have been watching what's happened in Yemen and have been increasingly frustrated with the Canadian government and with governments all over the world that are complicit and profiteering off of this conflict. Um, and we've had people reach out from all over the world saying, how can we stop the flow of these weapons? We're looking into it. 
we uh, agree that we can't continue to allow this to, to happen on our watch. And I can say for me personally, it was a big shock when I did realize that these tanks are driving essentially right by my house on the highway um, en route to such a horrific situation. I mean, I'm, I'm a parent to a young child under five, and when you read statistics, like a child under five is dying roughly every 10 minutes in Yemen because of this conflict, it's hard not to feel personally connected or to, to feel like uh, it's just impossible to, to be complacent and thus complicit in this conflict. I think everyone came with their own feelings of why we have to take action. Members of the Yemeni community were there with us, including many who had family back in Yemen who had been killed or were extremely ill um, because of the war. We're speaking with Rachel Small, Canada organizer for World Beyond War. I think over the years also, Rachel, we've occasionally seen labor unions at at docks in Europe stop shipments to this war, uh, but very little in North America. And I think people were pleasantly uh, shocked to see people actually putting their bodies in front of weapons for this war uh, when there's been such uh, acceptance and such uh, widespread ignoring <laughs> that the war's going on. Uh, and as a result, perhaps of you doing something uh, so powerful locally and it being a global day of action, uh, you got a great deal of, of media attention, didn't you? Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I was personally especially excited to see that the action was broadcast on Ye- Yemeni state television. Um, and of course, there were huge protests in Yemen itself on the global day of action to end the war. Um, and and to see footage of what we were doing being shown there was for me especially poignant. Um, I should add that one place that we took inspiration was from an action that did happen in Canada. Uh, two years ago, in December 2018, when a peace picket in St. John, New Brunswick, um, did also interrupt the shipment of armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia. The dock workers uh, refused to cross the picket line of the peace picket. And, um, yeah, as such, that was, that was another time when these arms were, were prevented from making it there. Um, and, and there is a history in Canada um, most famously of dock workers interrupting the shipment of heavy water in uh, destined for Argentina under a brutal regime. I feel like that's a sort of a famous example in Canada that we often look to of the ways that workers are integral to the process of of arming wars. And when they stand up and, and stop these weapons from being able to move, they can't move. Yeah, a a good tradition historically also in places like San Francisco, uh, just not as often as some of us might like. Um, I guess no one was hurt, no one was arrested. What do you do to try to minimize uh, risks in putting your bodies actually in front of weapons trucks? Yeah, I think on on one hand we we got pretty lucky and there's no science to this. Um, The truckers, to be honest, got very upset with us very quickly, within about five minutes of us blocking their sort of one driveway that allowed trucks to exit, um, they began trying to push us out of the way. They slowly tried to drive the truck that had been ready to leave um, into us. We tried very hard to sort of stay calm and to de-escalate, but at the same time to not move and to not 
give up our ground. Um, we obviously tried to avoid sort of arguing with them. We made it very clear why we were there, what was the connection between their trucking facility and the war in Yemen. Um, and we tried to simply stay sitting there in front of the trucks. I think that we did our best ahead of time to, to prepare people for what might happen. And we certainly took a number of legal precautions. We, of course, made sure we had a lawyer on call. Everyone had the lawyer's number as a worst-case scenario in case of arrest. We were very clear about our rights. And I should say that in terms of COVID precautions, we were extremely careful. Of course, everyone was wearing masks and we attempted as best we could to use our about eight or nine feet long banners to maintain social distancing. So everyone was kind of on either side of a banner and kept far apart from each other as a result. Um, we found it particularly ironic that in Canada right now, or in Ontario especially, um, protests are in this kind of iffy state of illegality because of COVID restrictions. But of course, People can be crowded inside CBLF making these tanks in unsafe conditions because war is apparently essential, right? And these are apparently essential workers creating these tanks, yet to protest outside, we're subject to, to fines or worse. Um, we did make a collective decision after just over an hour when it was clear that police and bylaw were ready to, to issue fines, but that um, we did achieve what we needed to achieve for that day. And, and we did leave together safe and strong. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if, if, if I can, I'm not sure if this applies to the next section. I think each one is a, a little bit different, a little bit its own chemistry. But I think thinking through scenarios ahead of time, having the legal support just in case, and talking through this with people so everyone knows what they're getting into is kind of my core requirement. I think it's an incredible point you make, Rachel, that essentials in, in Canada are food and water and medicine and providing weaponry so Saudis can kill Yemenis. I mean, this is an essential need, apparently. Um, that there, There's also been some, some progress uh, in terms of advancing your agenda in the Canadian Parliament, right? Yeah, so we are finally seeing... Some uh, liberal MPs begin to break ranks with uh, with their parties. So this is for international affairs. This is the, the party in power in Canada, and it, it, up to very recently, the whole party has been very tight-lipped. No one wants to contradict the official stance, which is that we assess the deal and we decided it can continue. Um, but there's no issue there. Um, but just recently. Um, some MPs in the Liberal Party have started to say, well, actually, I think we need to look at this again. I think we need to suspend this arms deal. Um, and for the first time in, in a media report that came out on Monday uh, in responding to a reporter's questions about the protest and about uh, how can the Canadian government justify sending these tanks, uh, a Liberal MP, Adam Bond, did um, speak from his conscience and from his heart and, and, and say what we know many of them must truly be thinking. So that is really nice to see, these little sort of cracks in, in, in the foundation of support within the government. I should say that the opposition parties for a long time now, uh, most of them have been on side and have been calling for at least a suspension, if not a full-out cancellation of the arms deal. Um, there have been many attempts to engage the government 
through meetings, through letters, through every channel that you're supposed to go through to get them to to negotiate, to discuss, and to hopefully move on on ending these atrocities via the billions of dollars in Canadian weapons that are committing them. Um, and and the government has sort of refused to to acknowledge or to respond. Um, so we're going at it from all angles. On Monday, we also worked with a number of allies and organizations across the country to launch a new parliamentary petition, which uh, once it is right in the House of Commons will force an official response from the government. Um, we don't know what they'll say, but it will at least force them to provide some sort of updated response on how they can justify continuing this arms deal. And it also calls for increased uh, humanitarian aid for Yemen, including for yes, refugees who are arriving here from there, um, and for Canada to play the role that Canadians think the Canadian military is playing or the Canadian government should be playing which is to be someone who is negotiating peace in the region, not continuing um, a military project that all experts have shown is not going to go anywhere in Yemen. It, it's it's hard for people uh, down here in the United States to know what to think of Canada because we sometimes think of it as this this more progressive, more sane, more liberal place where people find refuge from slavery and wars over the years, where healthcare is actually uh, treated more or less as a as a right rather than a privilege of the rich, where treaties like the Landmine Treaty come out of. But then we notice that Canada is is in nature is in all the wars, has maybe humanitarian rhetoric about them, but is taking part and has all the weapons dealing and the biggest weapons show in North America and so forth. What does what does Canada look like to Canadians who care about peace in the world? I think that many people in across Canada um, also have this kind of outdated idea of Canada as a peacekeeper internationally, as sort of like a global force for for peaceful solutions or generally for social justice or for human rights. I mean, the Canadian Prime Minister is very fond of saying that we have a feminist foreign policy. Unfortunately, none of this is true. At best, it's outdated. Um, but we do know from recent polling that that is what a majority of Canadians want. They want Canada's military role to focus on peacekeeping and disaster relief. Um, but unfortunately, the truth on the ground is that Canada is absolutely ramping up its role as a warmonger, as a global arms dealer, as a weapons manufacturer. This has been the case for many years, but is accelerating under our supposedly um, foreign policy prime minister. As I mentioned earlier, we've become one of the world's top arms dealers. And this is truly a shock for Canadians to hear. I was speaking with someone, if anyone in Canada who hasn't been closely following the military, they are shocked to hear that. It's not what people think Canada is or should be doing. Um, and to hear that we're the second biggest weapons supplier to the Middle East region is there's a real dissonance there between what folks in Canada want and, and what's actually happening. And especially in the past year, Canadian arms have played these newly devastating and very well documented roles in this humanitarian crisis, as I mentioned in Yemen, but also in Armenia. And I think that was a shock to many people as well. I think that people also are increasingly beginning to connect the dots between the actions of the Canadian military and the climate crisis. Um, the Canadian military's carbon emissions are outrageous. They're by far the largest source of all government emissions in Canada. But, of course, they're exempted from all of Canada's 
greenhouse gas reductions are there. So they're not counted, they're not accounted for, and they're just completely omitted. Um, and then when you begin to look at the devastating extraction of materials for war machines, so the mining, let's say, of uranium, of metals, of rare earth elements that are necessary for these war machines, and then the toxic mine waste that these mines produce, um, you begin to get a bigger picture of, oh, what is the impact of Canadian militarism on the environment? And that's not even counting the destruction that comes from the war initiatives themselves, from the bombings, from, um, yeah, the, the chemical impacts of every mission that NATO has been part of, for example, that Canada has participated in. I think that people also don't always think about the ways that, of course, Canada's foundational war is one of colonization, but then that is continuing now, and it's continuing through militarized violence. Um, I think in the past year it's been especially clear the way that those who are taking a stand at the climate front lines, so especially Indigenous people, especially where they're blocking pipelines or, for, or logging or these kinds of projects, that they're regularly attacked and surveilled by the Canadian military. And then, of course, this year it's been highlighted the ways that police forces um, are militarized and literally receive military equipment from the military and then use that as part of enacting terrible violence from coast to coast. I mean, especially against racialized communities in cities, but then also in rural areas against indigenous communities. Um, maybe one more thing I'll say that, that it's kind of ironic that folks in Canada don't know about is the huge way that the Canadian military has been ramping up its efforts at domestic surveillance and propaganda. The Canadian Forces actually has the largest PR machine in the whole country. There's 600 full-time PR staff. Um, and there's been several interesting leaks this year showing that, for example, they're, they're doing controversial propaganda training that's linked to Cambridge Analytica. So that same infamous, infamous company that was uh, at the center of that scandal where I believe it was Trump and Ted Cruz in the States who were getting illegal information from Facebook users. So this is the company that the uh, Canadian military is, is hiring to support its, its propaganda training. Um, and then maybe just to say that along with all of these efforts comes this huge increase in time with military budget. And this is under our current prime minister, uh, and who, who presents a completely opposite image. So the military budget has gone up 70% in just a few years. It's a huge increase. We spend 20 times on the military, what we do on the environment federally. And uh, a big part of my work has been connecting with allies to build movements against these next rejected military uh, purchases. So that's 88 new bomber jets the government would like to buy within the next year. Canada's first ever unmanned armed drones. There's a bunch of warships that are on the table. Uh, these are enormous purchases, and they'll lock us into decades of, of NATO missions that we know Canadians on the whole don't support. So that's the picture that I see looking at Canada right now. And, I mean, I, to be frank, I think we've really got our work cut out for us here. How have you been getting started? What have Canadian chapters and affiliates of World Beyond War been doing to, to organize and educate and, and take action? If, if people are against this agenda when they find out about it, uh, how are they finding out about it and what are they starting to do? There's been an amazing diversity of, of initiatives and tactics that the chapters and members and allies 
been doing. Um, on the West Coast, there is a wonderful initiative to get various uh, cities in, in British Columbia on the West Coast to divest from the war machine, to join the ICANN uh, Cities Initiative, so to have the city um, yeah, show support for the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and encourage Canada to do the same. Um, they motion was just passed at City Council in Langley, B.C. last month through excellent work of our Vancouver chapter. And similar initiatives are underway or, or almost done in Delta, Burnaby, Surrey, White Rock, a number of other uh, British Columbia cities. Um, so that's one angle, kind of how can we take public funds and public support out of the war machine. Um, a really exciting coalition has come together across Canada Um Completing my time at World Beyond War, but continuing certainly now to ramp up to oppose the purchase of these 88 uh, fighter jets. Um, we have to do a lot of uh, clarifying misinformation, uh, purposeful disinformation. These are anything but defensive uh, tools of the Army. These are bomber jets. Like They don't serve another purpose other than to drop missiles on other parts of the world. Um, and, I mean, we're, we're working as well to build up a new campaign to oppose, uh, as I mentioned, the purchase of these unmanned armed drones, digging into the hundreds of pages of documentation and requests for proposals and initial surveys of the Canadian military. We're starting to see some really interesting and scary things like that. They are really planning and faces clearly to use these drones to surveil protests in Canada's major cities itself. So suddenly these are clearly not just defensive weapons to secure our borders, as they say, but these unmanned armed zones are apparently to be flying over, over Toronto, over Montreal, over Vancouver, over major cities in Canada, um, yeah, to presumably quash and surveil uh, protests. Um, we have been part of founding the new Canada-wide Peace and Justice Network, which is an exciting way that dozens of organizations and groups across Canada are coming together to connect our various struggles and um, become a stronger force together that the Canadian government and folks across the country cannot ignore anymore. Um, and then, of course, there's been direct actions, there's been various protests and interruptions of the war machine like what we did uh, on January 25th um, to make sure that the business as usual simply cannot continue. Um, and of course, I should say tons of education initiatives, tons of webinars and events. Um, we were thrilled to join this Canadian Foreign Policy Institute uh, last week for an event with Noam Chomsky that thousands of people tuned into um, to begin to sort of connect the dots on what Canada really is and isn't doing. It sounds like you're doing a lot and there's a lot more to be done. Uh, less than a minute left. Uh, what can people do if they want to get in touch, uh, follow up uh, on your work, uh, find out more going forward? I can be reached at Canada at worldbeyondwar.org. Um, follow us on Twitter at WDW Canada. Of course, worldbeyondwar.org is where, is where everything is. And, and maybe I'll just add that it, it doesn't take a huge mechanism to get things changing. Two people in one place can meet with a politician, can trade an open letter, can write to the media. 
four or five people and you've got a local group, a few more, and you've got a pastor that can create a direct action, can disrupt weapons. It's just a few people in one place who work together really can the way the world is happening. Very, very true. Rachel Small, Canada organizer for World Beyond War, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.